I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And today we're very happy to have back with us Professor Chris Daniels. Welcome, mate. Thank you very much, Adrian. Hello, Steve. Hello. And since we last spoke, you are now the CEO of Koala Life. Yes, I've been in that position now for about 18 months, and Koala Life actually launched in March of this year as a foundation to... um, support research um, and understanding of koalas and their forest habitats. So it's a way of actually encouraging the community, organisations, governments um, and industry to invest in research so that we can better understand and protect the wide range of spectacular natural habitats that we have here in South Australia and Australia. Now here in Australia we've got 250 species of marsupial. Why does the koala get so much attention? Uh, it's a it's a fantastic question, Adrian, and it's it's one that has a, a simple answer at one level and a complicated answer at another. Koalas are in the top three most loved animals in the world, along with pandas and tigers, and they've probably overtaken those two as a result of the fires. They have a whole lot of characteristics that make them immediately appealing. You know, big front-facing eyes, magnificent fluffy ears. Um, they have the body proportions of a two-year-old. You can pick them up and hold them. They appear to uh, enjoy uh, that connection with people, so people enjoy that connection with them. Um, so they're an incredibly appealing animal. In the bushfires of 2019-2020, koalas actually burn unusually. Sorry to say it in that sort of way. <laughs> sorry sorry to laugh. So early. Yeah, so, yeah. so early in the podcast. I'd love to what I said, not for the action. Um, they have this incredibly thick, dense fur, which is actually a protection against fire and, and heat, so that when the bushfires came through, it's the edges of the, the koalas that burn, their paws in particular and their feet. Uh, and many of the koalas that were rescued after the fires required bandaging for the hands and feet. And the image of a koala clearly suffering with these bandaged hands and feet was so emotionally triggering, so shocking um, for huge proportions of the population around the world that they galvanised the focus onto the Australian bushfires. And that was demonstrated by the sheer amount of money, of course, that came to wildlife rescue groups um, and to organisations around the country dealing with koalas. No other animal in a bushfire has triggered that sort of visceral, tragic response um, like the way the koala did in those koala images. And so we were able, if you like, to have the world's focus on why there were bushfires here at that level. 2% of the continent burned. Um, And what should we be doing about it? What was the role of climate change in instigating those fires? And, of course, that we've now got fires of that scale or worse happening all around the world at the moment. But there isn't the attention to the enormous fires in Siberia, to the enormous fires in the Amazon, the huge fire that swept up from California to to the Canadian Rockies um, and the areas in British Columbia. Um, And, of course, the huge fires that are occurring in the Mediterranean right now. None of that attracted the sort of attention that the Australian fires attracted, and they got that attention because of those images of injured koalas. What kinds of things can we do about these reoccurring bushfires? Well, that's, that's one of the greatest challenges that we face because koalas 
and, and many of our wonderful indigenous fauna live in woodland or forests. And in fact, forests are the great and most important environment really for the maintenance of the planet. And we know that, whether they be tropical rainforests like the Amazon or the Belgian Congo region, Central Africa, um, or whether they be open grasslands, which are the wealthiest areas, the riparian woodlands along our creeks and streams and rivers. It is these forests, these trees, that provide us with the clean air, um, that control uh, temperature, that manage winds, that do all of these enormous benefits for us as inhabitants of planet Earth. So we have to be able to understand and save forests. And yet the forests are the ones most at risk from climate change. They're also most at risk from human impact, from clearing, from logging, um, from increasing grazing and farming pressures, um, from um, profiteering through taking plants that have value as high-end timber. Um, many plants, of course, produce chemicals that are important for us as cancer treatments and a whole lot of other health treatments. Um, so there's a whole lot of pressures on forests and fires are one of them. So the most important real community that we have, terrestrial community, is old growth forests. So number one, we need to be preserving as large amounts of that as possible, and we need to make sure that those units are interconnected. Secondly there, we have to replant. We have to reveg, um, and we have to do it now as soon as possible with as broad an array of tree species as we can. And then we have to link that to the fauna that inhabit them because a forest itself doesn't exist in isolation. It actually requires invertebrates, it requires bees and pollinators, it requires the, the small mammals that move around, that eat the fruit, um, whose faecal matter, whose poo, if you like, uh, provides the fertiliser for the growth of the new plants. And many of the birds distribute the seeds. So we also need to be simultaneously encouraging wildlife to go back there. So along with revegetation, we need to be rewilding. And this whole scope, and then of course, we need to manage them because we change the planet now to a point where it's very difficult for it to operate on the timescales that we operate on um, and still be sustainable. So how do we manage diseases? How do we manage uh, pests coming in? How do we manage animals becoming overabundant or others disappearing? And how do I, we identify which are the important ones that support the ecosystem services of the, the forest itself? So koalas, for example, have an important role to play as providing ecosystem service. They, they are browsers, so they will stimulate growth at tips. Too many koalas will kill a tree because they'll overeat. Not enough, and the tree won't be stimulated to grow quite to the extent that it does. So we need to understand these relationships. We need to be attracting um, the birds, the mammals, the insects. We need to be introducing them, and then we need to be managing them appropriately. And that's a lot of work to look after a forest. But if we do, then we get all of these advantages that a forest gives us. I love that. And just as you're saying <coughs> sorry, that, yeah. sorry, there's a duck fight happening in the pond next to us. <laughs> They've seemed to have sorted it it's out. It's spring here. It is spring here. <laughs> the other day we had yellow-footed rock wallabies, rufous bear tongs, brush-tailed bear tongs, long-nosed potteries all locked, locked up, and over here was a duck fight. Um, it's all happening. And they're all flashing their eclipse feathers. They've got that shimmy going there. They're... They're displaying, carrying on. It's uh, an astonishing colour. You've got to like spring. I love, yeah, I love that. I love it. So, so I love the way, Chris, that you've, you're using the koalas, mm. which get all this attention, to bring attention to the whole system. 
Well, sometimes you've got to work with the ones that capture their imagination. It would be great to do greater gliders and their story that they tell. Um, it would be lovely to do cryptomelliferous, you know, the snake-eyed skinks that form little groups that live in the, the bark of many of these big old trees. You know, and we also can think about some of these trees as boarding house of the bush. There's so many species that use these. But koalas are the ones that attract the imagination. And they have become the trigger for what happened to these forests and what should we do about them. And the loss of these forests mean the loss of one of these top three most loved animals in the world. So people in the UK, people in the US, people in Central Europe felt deprived of one of the world's great animals when the fire happened here. So we have to tell a story. Um, and it's, it's a tragic story, as in, you know, the comments about how injuries occur to, to koalas in a fire. But that tells a story about how it's adapted to living in the trees, how they even survived some of those firestorms, some of these individuals, because of the incredible density of their, their fur. And then what are we learning now about how to treat them? and the veterinary response to, to koala injury because they obviously damage their airways and internals more than they do their externals. They can look quite healthy on the outside but be very ill indeed on the inside. So we're understanding more about their physiology as a result of the fires in order to be able to save and rescue more when the next fire happens. Like people love human babies, a lot of people do, um, but they're like a fluffy... Mm human baby and then to see one of those suffering it would have to pull up people's heartstrings oh absolutely and it, it did worldwide so we we were inundated at Cleland after the fires with um knitted booties and mittens for the injured um koalas one thing that people felt they could do overseas you know, tens of thousands of kilometers away was to knit and so they knitted joey pouches they knitted these mittens they knitted birds nests so up at Cleveland Wildlife Park, we wound up with pallets of knitted bird's nests from ones as small as an egg cup to ones that clearly someone thought a harsed seagull was coming back to life. <laughs> so, you know, you'd, you'd have this thing the size of a, of a small child's bed would arrive here. Of course, the only thing these birds didn't need was a nest. Uh, many of those that inhabit woodlands, as you know, nest in, in hollows. So they were useless anyway. There were plenty of hollows because there were lots of dead trees there. But it was No something... one knitted a hollow. <laughs> yes, <laughs> knitted a tree. But it, they wanted to do something. So sending money was something, but they wanted to do more. So we really need to understand how we can encourage people to do something that was constructive. Unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do with 10 or 15,000 knitted bird's nests um, for places like Kangaroo Island, Cudley Creek, or even the Scott Creek fire just recently. So with, with all that money that was raised, does that allow us to, to educate ourselves better? It did and it didn't. I think we're still sort of working through where a lot of the, the money to wildlife went. A lot of it went to individual organisations who were on the ground sort of servicing the, the immediate triage for the animals. Um, so, and many of these organisations have done amazing things. Groups like WISE is quite famous for it. A lot went to World Wildlife Fund, who have also an advocacy role um, and also support research across the area. Um, and they also put a lot of pressure on state governments. So. You would have seen the New South Wales and Queensland state governments have invested a lot now into rebuilding koala habitat, into replanting, um, and a lot of resources have wound up with some research organisations like the Koala Hub, uh, Corumban, Port Macquarie Sanctuaries, and so forth. So I think we will see that will develop and shake out. We still 
are away from having a national koala forum, which means a national approach to forests. For koalas, always read forests. The whole story really is about forests. Uh, we have not managed our forests well in the 200 years we've been here, um, and we continue to not understand their significance and, and their importance to us as a community. We tend to think of them as an easy commodity because we always had plenty of space. I mean, my father's era after the Second World War, when you set up a farm, you could only buy a farm if you cleared all the native veg out. Yeah, it was that sort of approach. Get on, get rid of the scrub, um, because it was always, always viewed as that, just scrub. So here in South Australia, we have less than 8% is remnant vegetation in the Mount Lofties. So we're sitting in a little island of magnificent remnant vegetation right here. That's only 8%. On the plains, it's 3%. Uh, South Australia has really done exceedingly poorly in retaining remnant vegetation. What we're now seeing, of course, is landowners are trying to revenge and trying to bring it back. But it takes a long time and it's never as good as the 300 to 500 year old trees um, and remnant pockets because of all of the things they provide for all of these other animals that do all of these activities that keep the ecosystem healthy. That's why nesting boxes are great because there's not a lot of quick fixes yeah. and it can take hundreds of years for a tree hollow to form, but you can whack up a nesting box and it can be used almost immediately. Oh, that's exactly right. And in fact, for, for a lot of places, nesting boxes are the major supporter and they support so many birds that, that nest in hollows from tiny little pardalotes to, to owls to kookaburras. They've got all of these owlet night jars, these magnificent birds, um, and also lots of invertebrates and, of course, lots of the marsupials. You know, so the, the ringtail possums, the brush-tail possums, the gliders, they'll all use nest boxes. So where you have young trees that don't have hollows, they are absolutely fantastic. It can take two or three hundred years for a tree to have the hollows that are appropriate for, for birds and mammals. So we, we have to be thinking like that. And there's some, around the world, there's artificial trees which have artificial hollows that they've, they can put up these big sort of metal and wood trees <laughs> to make uh, habitat. For, for the animals that then will support the, the rest of the communities. I don't know if I even told you this, Steve, but the other day we had an owl at night jar in one of the nesting boxes. Now, I don't know if oh, it's wow. nesting, but it might have just been inspecting. Fantastic. Um, but that was pretty awesome. They're not really common here in the Metlofty no. Ranges. No, you tend to see them more in the, the drier areas if you get up into the Mallee and up towards the river. I've never seen one um, in the wild, and, but aren't they a gorgeous bird? They are gorgeous. So we've got these fantastic birds that are disappearing. Um, and it's the other loss of the trees means you, you lose the woodland mixture. And so one of our biggest extinctions here is the, the extinction of open woodland birds, uh, the robins and the flycatchers and the, the pardalotes and those sorts of things, because they're, they're losing either the seed or the little invertebrates that live on the few big trees that are there. Um, and then you wind up with outbreaks of things like lerps because there's no little birds like pardalotes to eat them and there's no little birds because there's no nesting hollows because we chop down all the big trees. So the remaining trees wind up really suffering. So that's what I mean by the ecosystem services. It is about the trees, but it's also about the animals that use the trees that create the system that gives it its stability. Yeah, that leaf gleaning guild is so important. It's funny, you, you, you get a local native gum tree and it's really hard to find a leaf that hasn't been eaten yeah. by something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. You've got skeletonizing caterpillars. You know, you've got all of these bugs that just start to run riot because you've just got a few trees and you've lost the birds. So it's not just about losing a bird that you love. It's actually about what happens to the system. 
Which was the bad thing on Kangaroo Island as well, because the, the koalas that were left that got away from the fires or were in a different area uh, are now in an area where there's actually hardly any food there for them as well. Yes, it's an enormous challenge now for a place like Kangaroo Island because they were introduced there in the 1920s um, from a population from uh, French Island, I think it was French Island from, uh, and they originally got there from the Otways when they thought they were all going to go extinct in Victoria. And so they were introduced there, they really took off in the Manigums and the River Red Gums along the, the creeks and streams, um, and then gradually their numbers built up uh, from the, the 30s, but really escalated when the, the blue gum plantations went in, um, and then their numbers massively increased, and they would be in various gum trees within Flinders Chase and elsewhere, and then come into the blue gums to feed and then go back. Um, otherwise, they were mostly around caravan parks, like um, the Western Cape Caravan Park and down on the, the south coast. But their numbers increased up to about 50,000. So when the fires came through, it, it took out their food area, the plantations, tremendously, as well as, of course, um, doing extraordinary damage in Flinders Chase and other areas up in the, in the north. So not only did you lose the animals, but you lost the food. So the ones that remained had the potential to starve to death. Um, they seem to have hung on. What we don't know, of course, is what's happened to their reproductive capability. So is this a cliff we're coming towards now where the remaining ones die out and you simply haven't got young um, this will have to be monitored, measured and So they and may managed. not have babies, they may feel that there's just not the Because there wasn't enough them. food yeah. for them to, to get through for a mm. couple of years well certainly in some areas you might get that but other areas where they survived and food source was relatively intact and then what happens if animals have been released there, rescued from the fires or others have come into that area because their last remaining vegetation so there's going to be some interesting scenarios play out in a, in a place like Kangaroo Island. It's probably also playing out here in the Mount Lofties because the Cutley Creek fire burnt an area the size of metropolitan Adelaide. It's a huge fire. Um, just before that, in um, 2015, we had the Saps and Flat fires, yeah. which also devastated quite a large area of woodland habitat, so affected koalas amongst other animals. And then just this last... March, we had the Cherry Gardens. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was actually end of January. Yes, yeah, because yeah. we evacuated yeah. all my animals to we Steve's. We could see the flames <laughs> from here. And that, yeah. that probably killed very large numbers of, of marsupials. But there were no bodies left there because that fire was a chimney fire, a pyroform fire. So the, the smoke went straight up and probably took the dead animals with them, as opposed to this fast-moving fire across... Kangaroo Island and Cudley Creek, which left this a huge amount of damaged and injured animals um, to be collected later. So we don't know how many disappeared in the uh, the Scott Conservation Park fire, but I suspect it was in the thousands. Fifty thousand koalas on Kangaroo Island. It's not that big. That's a lot of koalas on a small island, isn't it? I mean, they're not native to the island, but they're. They're important because they're chlamydia-free, yeah. but they, there was also a lot of talk before the fires that um, they're eating themselves out of house and home and it became a very contentious issue, didn't it? That's a lot of koalas. Yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of koalas, and they're actually very valuable koalas. So sort of two things happened. One is everybody thought, oh, there's plenty, so it doesn't matter if we lose some anyway, and in fact there have been continuing arguments about whether they should be managed, whether they should be sterilised, and there was a sterilisation program whether we should be practising contraception or what the big evil word, the cull word, the, the C word, um, was all bandied around about the discussion. 
But because they were introduced in the 1920s from an island and they were introduced into French Island right at the turn of the century, the animals that were moved there did not have chlamydia. Um, most of the East Coast animals have chlamydia, which they picked up from sheep, probably as early as, as 1788, 1790, you know, when the very first flocks arrived. So they have this, this big issue around chlamydia. And chlamydia is an intracellular bacteria that affects mucous membranes. So anything that lines a tube, basically. So your gut, your urogenital canals, your eyes, your ears, uh, all those sorts of things can get these bacteria in there and then they weep and become infected. And the animals can lose vision, but in particular they can become sterile or at least unable to reproduce. Um, and so the numbers drop off and the populations crash. And this um, problem with chlamydia, the illness associated with chlamydia, appears to be um, attenuated by another disease that the northern koalas get, which is called CORV, or koala retrovirus, which is a nasty little virus that gets into the, the germline of koalas, and it acts like koala AIDS. So it affects the immune system. So these these guys wind up with lymphomas and various forms of cancers, but in particular their ability to fight infection decreases. So if you've got CORV and then you get chlamydia, you're in a really difficult position. And so we're seeing this massive collapse of populations of northern koalas in Queensland and New South Wales. South Australia has a different type of CORV um, and nowhere near as prevalent, and the animals seem to be able to tolerate it. Um, and even if they get chlamydia, as they do in the Mount Lofties, it doesn't seem to have the same effects. So the southern koala just doesn't seem to suffer from these, these sorts of diseases, even if they get them. The kangaroo island koalas didn't have either, or had a very low incidence of corv um, and no chlamydia. So everyone sort of looked at the kangaroo island and went, oh, look, they're inbred because they've come through these couple of spots, these genetic bottlenecks. But there's plenty of them, so we don't need to worry about them, and they'll be a sanctuary population up until fires, and what that shows you is if you put all your eggs in one basket, you run a real risk. The really important bits that these koalas had is that they're disease-free, but we lost 85 to 90% of the population. So, yes, there were lots. Yeah, that was a good discussion to have, but we didn't manage it, and nor were we prepared to protect the important animals when disasters came either. So we're in a difficult position. Is there another island or location where we could translocate some of the chlamydia-free animals to? So we actually rescued 28 from there specifically for that purpose and took them to Clearland Wildlife Park. And so we have them there and they're, they're ready to breed up and to breed up as sanctuary animals. Then what you want to do is, or what we want to do, is move them to other locations where you can seed populations, usually in a managed situation, so that you can protect this particular, you know, their particular characteristics about being um, healthy. And that's a big part of rewilding. And that's why we have to start to, to take seriously the fact that we changed the planet. We changed it dramatically. And it needs a range of different actions as well as conserving remnant vegetation in order to support these particular populations. So rewilding into different locations, establishing sanctuary populations, understanding these disease characteristics are oh, its bigger part as replanting. Yeah, we can put more trees in the ground, but that's not gonna get koalas there, and it's not gonna get the right koalas. So if we're putting trees in the ground, we make sure we put the right trees in. When we introduce, animals back to the areas they need to be the right animals so this is kind of it's a 
a 21st century view of the old ARC approach, where we thought about islands as places where you put populations in order to keep them alive. And we've done that a lot here in, in Australia. They do it a huge amount in New Zealand. We just about every New Zealand island has a population of tuatara or some strange flightless bird as, as in a remnant in order to keep them away from stoats and foxes and things like that. We need to be thinking about that for so many of our, our animals, our birds, our reptiles and our marsupials in particular as part of this whole recovery system. So rewilding, revegetation, sanctuary establishment, understanding diseases, they're all a way out of or a way towards the recovery after devastating situations like we just had. Yeah, we've got bilbies on Thistle Island yep. and betong, brush-tailed betongs on Wedge Island. Actually, on that, only just over about a fortnight ago were put back into the York Peninsula. Yeah. Betongs yes. extinct on the mainland of South Australia have been put back. Nanamangara, the Great Southern Ark. So that's a great example of rewilding. And that's the other great advantage of centuries is that you use them to establish the breeding populations that you introduce into areas that you are major large-scale areas, I might add, that you're trying to establish these populations. So the Southern Ark is a brilliant example of that. And they've now got, I think, fox-proof fences. They're working on the foxes and the cats, working with landowners, particularly around cats, and then introducing these animals. And they should be able, then, to establish working, reliable populations at a large scale. There's always a few challenges, though, whenever you get into herbivores, small, medium-sized herbivores, because they're very good at reproducing. And one of the challenges with islands is that if they are completely predator and disease-free, their numbers can explode. So how do you manage that? You don't want the place overrun with potteroos or betongs because of the damage they'll do to the vegetation. Thylacines. Well, that and in fact, that's the other arg argument around <laughs> rewilding is, in fact, rewilding argues that it's driven by the large predator, the biggest predator. So in the US, for example, the rewilding programs are all around wolves. Um, lynx in the, in the UK has been a big issue and wolves in Scotland. Do you bring those back? And then you see how they manage the populations of rapidly breeding herbivores. So the arguments here, of course, have been, well, what about dingoes? Um, and should mm. we be having dingoes here? Now, that's really controversial because dingoes obviously impact sheep, lambs, um, and farmers' livelihoods. Um, so it's not probably something you can do at a, at a scale where, where farming is practised. But it's part of the, part of the debate, and it mm. gets you there. That's, that's right. So if only we still had thylacines, which I've, we had till about 4,000 years ago. I've mm. said that before, haven't I, where, where things like thylacines would probably be really successful now because of, like, you know, cats and foxes. Oh, they could hunt yeah, that. That, yeah. that would be part of their... And rabbits, I mean, massive part of it. I like, mean, the, re the reason foxes exist as a problem is because of rabbits. Mm. Um, uh, you know, they were introduced several times and weren't very successful up until the rabbits got established. They followed the rabbits inland. Followed the rabbits. And yeah, they did right. it into Adelaide too. I mean, they came here about the 1870s, about 10 years after the rabbits were established. Yep. And for those of us who love the little marsupials, that was, it was a travesty. Mm. Yeah, it was. No, you're absolutely right. This side of the dog fence, really controversial to mention dingoes. And yet we have to sometimes cull kangaroos and wombats because nothing else is hunting them. Um, yeah, people don't really eat them. <laughs> people don't really go out and eat wombats. Traditional people do a little bit, but 
the other the only other thing is the devil or quolls. Yeah. I mean, but they won't take down a wombat or a kangaroo, but they'll, like you say, the small herbivores like your betongs and you know and bandicoots and things like that. And see, I'm not a fan of culling because it, it, it's kind of a lazy person's way of thinking about how you control populations because culling usually means, you, you know, or it's often interpreted to be you get your shotgun and you go out and you blast away. Well, even if you want to cull, say, a thousand kangaroos, well, half of them are going to be male, so that doesn't affect the reproductive capacity of the population. Probably a third of them will be older females and non-reproductive females. So you're actually only taking out probably 200 or 300 of the, the actual reproductive units. So the population just bounces back. Yeah, you're helping the guys that are there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. You actually lead to even more within a year or so. The second thing that happens is that you decrease the grazing pressure. So the ones that remain actually have more grass to eat and thicker grass that comes up. So they get fatter and plumper so they have more babies. Yep. So <laughs> the, you have to really know what it is you want to do when you go to cull. You know, what are you trying to achieve? Is it in a limited area? What is the carrying capacity of the land? What do you want the population structure to look like? And how do you establish it? And culling has tended to work when you want to look at a smaller area and you fence it off so you just don't get invasion from outside, which is also what happens after culling. So culling rabbits never really made any difference. Uh, culling dingoes never made any difference. It's only those animals that are very low reproductive rate that really also succumb to other aspects of the environment. So either disease, so myxomatosis for rabbits, that, that work quite well. Um, or you think about other ways. So sterilisation and contraception have been more effective. The other thing, of course, about culling is the community hate it. You know, you've got animals that are, that are injured. It can be done. You know, but they hate contraception way. as well. Well, they, ha they hate sterilisation. I don't think they quite understand contraception, which isn't the same. I mean, mm. we are a con contraception-driven community, um, and we do it with we do sterilisation with dogs, but you can do contraception, sterilisation with cats. The idea around contraception is that you can put a long-lasting contraception, usually from a dart, um, into many animals over the breeding season, and then the animal just doesn't breed that season. You're not hurting the animal. You're not even moving the animal. It can stay there, but it's just not having any babies. And you can control how many you do, you can target the females, um, and that also helps to keep the population structure in place so you don't get invasions from outside. Um, you manage the, the herbivore pressure down, um, and it's potentially the most ethical way to do it. So we've got to be fairly careful that there's a big difference between culling at the one end and contraception at the other. However, you're still expecting humans to fulfil the role of the top predator. And without a top predator, systems are always going to struggle. Yeah, it's, it's analogous to people that every year use glyphosate on their small properties. Okay to do it the first year in a follow-up, but you should have a plan to maybe put in some indigenous ground covers. Otherwise, you're just constantly flooding the creeks with poison. That's exactly right. That, that, I mean, that's a, that's a really good example. If you try to just treat a symptom uh, in that sense, getting rid of your kaikuyu, and then you don't do anything else. You're just going to get kaikuyu back. You or know, something you know, worse. Or something worse. <laughs> That's right. You wind up, yes, with onion weed or sour sobs. Terrible. <laughs> Prickles. That, that take, yes. I like, I like yeah. sour sobs. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm editing block, that out, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time my lovely block that's normally just brown <laughs> and it, it has some green to it. And then it dies down and feeds the soil. 
That's, I'm going to bring over some Mayapur and Parvapalam to your place. Like <laughs> so it's, it's this whole thing about how, how do we actually have a sensible debate about management? Because all of this, all of these aspects about the recovery after disaster or a man-made disaster like just excessive clearing, all requires all of this management. So we've been actually thinking about things differently when we look at conservation. We've tended to think about conservation as finding a magic piece of land like there, throwing a fence around it and going, we've conserved this remnant of vegetation. And that's great, but it needs more than that. And in fact, we've now got about 30% of the state is under either the park system or private park system or under control of Aboriginal people. Yet we still have this massive extinction. We've still got things declining and we've also got the growth of, of pests. So we need to do more. So we call this survival science where you have that aspect, rendered vegetation is core, but on top of that you have revegetation, you have rewilding, you have identification and management of disease and parasites, which can be just important. Um, and you have to have this connection, pathways connecting up, and you have to engage in people. Ironically now, where the greatest biodiversity exists tend to be in the cities and surrounding areas. Now, agricultural land it really is very poor in terms of its quality of biodiversity. It tends to be monocultures. But when you look at cities and peri-urban areas, and with the increase in the greenness of cities, that's where you find the life. A lot of life is introduced, like your sour sobs there, Steve. But at the same time, there's a lot of natives that are there too. And you've got this interesting dynamic growing up that is the urban ecology of communities. We've also tended to build communities on rivers, and they tend to be the, the heart, if you like, of biodiverse systems. So a lot of what we do now is where people are. So we have to engage people in their role in protecting nature, their role in planting the wattles that we see here at your garden, um, their role in understanding you shouldn't have too many ash trees. We've got a few here. You know. Well, that's I've got one, and it's a golden ash, and it's not the bushland weed one, the desert Okay, ash. good. I'm dropping you into it. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. I'm glad Chris, you brought it up. Chris, leave it. Leave I've the ash tree. <laughs> I love the golden Chris, ash there. Anyway. Ca- I'm moving it, it out of here alive. It, it came with the house. I didn't plant it, but I've got lawn and an ash tree. And I used to be a hardcore, diehard, local native plant guy, and I've realised that around your house it's really sensible to have a deciduous tree for shade and... Um, it's much nicer to sit. It's probably not going to drop a, a limb on me. Um, yeah. But, yeah, anyway, please carry but if, on. But if that tree wasn't there, he wouldn't have just said that ever. That's <laughs> <laughs> right, I have to own it. <laughs> but it does go back to the also, so the, the second thing, so that's survival science, and that really applies to where we want to protect the last of the biodiversity on the planet. But then there's what we want to live with. And living with nature is slightly different in an urban context as well because people love the golden ash and they love their roses and they love other forms of nature and it is a city. And so what do they deliver to people? Well, it's a connection. And you start with that before you work up towards being sort of hard-nosed greenies like we are. You start with, well, what do you love about nature? And what do you enjoy? And if it's tending a lawn, if it's tending roses, it's, it's having some of these beautiful trees, that's great in a city because that's what cities are. They're this mishmash, this, this mm. um, heterogeneous collection of introduced and native species. But getting connected with nature is the most important thing if we're going to keep nature alive on the planet. If we have disconnected communities, disconnected individuals, we're really going to struggle. Who the hell will care whether the Amazon burns? But if you don't appreciate nature, then you might. 
No, I absolutely agree. And I think um, glamping's a really big thing because people can have their creature comforts, and I'm all about that. I love creature comforts. I like living in a house, uh, which is kind of, you know, sort of nature, but it's not nature nature. But knowing that nature's just out there, so on a freezing cold day, I can see the I can see the birds freezing cold birds out the window. But you know what I mean, like I mock them. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> With my house, um, but no, I love I love knowing it's there, and I love being able to go and look at it. I'm not saying we should just get rid of technology and lock down the houses and take our shoes off. I mean, sometimes um, it's good to get out with no shoes on. But yeah, no, but you're right. If we don't, choice isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, it's the choice of the individual to interact with nature as long as they work out how they want to do it. I mean, you guys go to um, a lot of aged care facilities, and one of the last things that often um, individuals suffering from dementia uh, or stroke or all sorts of incapacity in the, the last stages of their life, one of the things they like to do is to touch and hold. They still retain the sense of smell. You know, you give them wonderful lectures on the, the origins of the animals, but they're probably not interested in that or don't retain it. But they do get a lot out of that touch and that connection with nature at the end. And we see that a lot with kids too. So the, the very early parts of life and the very last parts of life, we really see how important nature is for us. We forget it in the middle bits. Um, and you've just got to encourage people to find your way to have a bit and there's no judgment here. Yeah, we get a lot of those sort of comments about, well, if you're a nature lover, why do you drive? Well, because I'm not going to walk everywhere. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to ride a horse. Uh, you, that you have to be able to to live in the community. Yeah. But at the same time, it's that appreciation of nature that's a really important thing. Yeah, it's so funny. Like I started this business, Animals Anonymous, 15 years ago, and I had these really high ideas. Um, my goals were to make everybody by the end of my spiel showing in some animals and talking about these are endangered, this is extinct and what we need to do is local native plants and nesting boxes and and by the end of it everybody would understand what I was saying and I realised that it's a lot bigger than that mm. it's planting a seed, yeah definitely if, if someone's listening, say those things but but it, like you said, it's making that initial connection because then I think back to when I first got right into nature, I was a kid and one of the guys in my class had a bearded dragon and I was like, whoa, and I was just mystified by this animal. It's amazing. I, I think I, my parents were angry because I swapped like 200 bucks worth of my toys for it. I was like, I had this. Um, <laughs> this is before permits. Um, but anyway, and, and, I, and I just loved it. We, we, we created a reptile pit outside and I was breeding bearded dragons and shinglebacks and blue tongues. I was putting in indigenous plants and I was putting mulch in and I was like, and that was what got me started was this lizard, which was essentially a pet but that led on to getting books about the environment and just having that interest and, you know, sort of what you were touching on before, if you're not exposed to it, you can't want to protect it because you don't know it exists. Mm. So it's about getting people out there and camping and that's what I want to do. Here's the next stage for this place. I want, yeah, I can go into a classroom. It's really hard to convey a concept. I can say, I can say this is a snake, this is a betong, we can talk about all the bits and pieces on the different animals, but to talk about habitat, it's just a concept. That's why we have pull-up banners that don't have any animals on the pull-up mm. banners. It's all there's a waterfall, there's a desert scene, there's a you know there's a forest scene, and we can put the animal in front of it and mm. try to give context. Stage two is to get people to come here, and and be open for people in wheelchairs to come here, mm. and mm. of any age group they can come here and and hear and smell and touch. And yeah, we've got the I think the powerful, like you said, the holding an animal, you know, getting to touch the different animals, and even having a photograph. I know people whinge about taking a photo. If it's a pet, it helps people. Um, remember that 
they did that. Like, I teach first-year vet students. Uh, I do I do 60 wildlife practice each year at Roseworthy. Mm-hmm. And the students aren't allowed to take photos in the practice. And I can understand why that the uni have that policy and, you know, um, that kind of thing. But then there's other nights we go there where the students have a, a, a wildlife club and they pay for us to go in there and do uh, private handling courses. And that's our rules then. And I encourage, I say, do your photos. I know selfies are cheesy, but if you're handling an animal and you get that snapshot of you doing it correctly that'll embed that into mm. your mind mm. and then you'll always have that there. And that's that's not what I thought I'd be doing when I started Animals Anonymous. It got bigger than yeah. um, what I thought it would with regards to uh, the effect that we have on people. Like we did a, a country show at Kimber, which we're heading up to again in a couple of weeks if COVID doesn't screw that for us. And there was a guy that had muscular dystrophy. He hadn't left his house for two years, um, but he loved reptiles and heard that we were there and he came down and he, he spent the whole day just sitting with us holding goannas and crocodiles and bearing in mind ours are friendly, of course. Um, Your crocodiles and, are friendly. Well, with their mouth tape, they're really, they're really <laughs> they good. Are. Um, so, and the, the whole town were like, oh, my God, Peter's here. Oh, my God, Peter's here. Peter's here. And it was like this really big thing. And he was telling people about the animals too because that was his passion. And, and that's not what I set out to do, but that was a lovely, you know. I think it's amazing. I, I think you'd be amazed if you could actually put a figure to how many people you've educated over the last, whatever, 15 years. If you could put a figure to that, that would be huge. And what you guys do, which I've always been really impressed with, is not only you imparting knowledge, you can impart knowledge in a lot of different ways, but the most important aspect is not the facts. Um, it's it's that you teach people to respect the animal, mm. um, that, that this animal is, you know, it's a glorious um, piece of existence on this planet, and we have a role to respect and protect it and to understand it to engage with it um, and to leave here not only knowing a little bit more about it but really wanting to make sure this animal has a place on the planet and that to me is the most important aspect you know when you watch David Attenborough he's always incredibly respectful of the animals regardless of the message that he's sending or what he's talking about his behavior is always utmost respect for the animal that he's talking about not all of our wildlife presenters around the world are that respectful, and that always sort of bugs me a little bit. So that's one of the first things. Yeah, the second thing is you've, you've engaged people, and then you talk to people, well, do you feed sparrows, for example? Some people love sparrows. Yeah. Okay, why do you love sparrows? And then you get to the bottom of what's the enjoyment you get from them. Well, did you know we got red-brown finches? These are such glorious little birds. Have you ever taken an interest in them? Ever gone up to Belair National Park and see if you can find them. You know, ever seen them around here, you'd have um, red-brown finches. I see them, yeah. All over the place. Once you've seen those, you're not going back to a sparrow, <laughs> you know. So you, you start off with there, you discover what is about that particular animal that it's connecting with people, and then you grow. You have to start from, from somewhere. And if they stay with sparrows or roses, so be it too. Yeah, I think like the really exciting thing about like all the things that we're talking about now, it might be the circles that I move in like the last few years since we've been doing the podcast and things, but I'm pretty sure that as a whole, everyone is more switched on to the environment, even even because of small things like I say small things, it's a big thing and it's an amazing things like um, the the B and Bs, the the B. Things yeah, the that big you can make yeah. them all yourself, and he kids have gone out hotels. and made them everywhere, yeah. and just made really simple versions of it. Put them up in their garden, and they're watching things like that. Like someone's and, and made making bee 
places to live has made that super exciting. Mm. That all kids, I don't know a kid that wouldn't go, yeah, I'm in. I yeah. want to build one of those and put it and, up. And, and they then watch work. It. They actually attract quite a lot. And that's what's of, changing of now there. is that yeah. people are actually looking at insects. And and like you've done it with the mammals for years. There's a mammal and they eat. You know the 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 undergrowth. That the undergrowth's important for these and da da da. But when you get down to you could talk about insects for the same reason. You're kind of, we're getting close to just being fully focused on the bush really matters. Mm. And did you see in the paper today that the Murdoch Press have announced that they're going to start a campaign for the world to become carbon neutral by 2050, I think it was. This is a dramatic change from the Murdoch Press around the world where they have been the major uh, campaigners against climate science and, and, and the knowledge that we have impacted the world. So what drove them to it? Well, even the young Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch, left the family saying, you know, we've been taking a very poor position on climate change, don't want a part of it. The thing that changed was the bushfires and the responses. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, harnessing um, the, the movement of that has progressed around animals like koalas in order to get the bigger message across, starting with something. If you start with roses and sparrows, you'll get somewhere. If you start too, too extreme, you won't get anywhere. You want to start with the knowledge, start with engagement, develop respect for nature, then develop connection and engagement with exactly the sort of things you wanted to do, then you're away. Then we'll make a difference to the planet. And that's the way out of our mess. And we start having more intelligent, deeper, more complex conversations around how you manage rather than say find a patch and put a fence around it and leave it to the government to work out because that won't do it yeah we need to, i think a lot of the factions need to find the areas where they do agree and then work from there mm. because you come people come at it from one end or the other and they're never going to agree and it never amounts to anything except everyone just gets stressed and yeah you know gets nasty but taking back to where you said, like, there's, I think you said 3% of the plains is natural bush. Of the, of the Adelaide plains. Of the Adelaide yeah. plains. Most of that's the, the mangroves. You, the you know, and you've got people mm. that have got backyards with just only grass or, or maybe even patio with, you know, just, just concrete on the ground or whatever. You know, even you could, we could all up that percentage from 3% if you could work it out properly that's by right. just putting some pots of native plants or you know something to help the bees and the insects and things if everyone in the garden in in their garden in adelaide put a few native plants or a box or a nesting box box, exactly or both maybe that's absolutely spot on steve and that's you know 70 percent of land in adelaide metropolitan area or any cities is private land most of the rest of it are the verges the footpaths the 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 median strips the parks, the golf courses, you know, the, the, the public land um, that has been cleared. And people said, you know, well, there's nothing we can do about preserving biodiversity. Well, that's 97% mm. of the area. Not quite, uh, because there's the hard surface as well. But it's probably 80% of mm. the area. So, yeah, you can do If you did a little thing and your neighbour did a little thing and you start connecting up, there's a wonderful group up here, the Sturt um, Landcare Group, where 19 or 20 properties have made bandicoot connections between Belair and Mark Oliphant National Park, so just through their own backyards. So they've made that connection themselves, and they've done that. And there's plenty of other really good small groups that just do things locally, Mm. and their value is inestimable. 
absolutely vital because that's how bandicoots will survive and that's how the little birds will survive because it's people's backyards that will make the difference. Yeah, I mean, we did, and I've said it so many times on it, you you helped us do our native garden outside our kitchen window and, like, the front of our house. We've just put native plants in that. And the amount of insects and even little skinks and everything that we've got around there now, and we've got our B&B, um, yeah. our bee hotel, um, and, and most of that is filled in with, with yeah. bees as well. Like, And you see uh, a blue-banded bee, like, wow, it's stunning. And it's amazing. Yeah, it's just it's amazing. I wish everyone. I wish you could get everyone on board instantly, mm. and uh, just to get some of those native plants. So a lot of this is the reason for Green Adelaide is mm. that you know it, it grew out of the natural resources management system, um, which was all about improving water, land, soil, biodiversity, but tended to be out in the agricultural areas. Um, when it first started, there isn't a role for cities. Now we have Green Adelaide, which is specifically fo- focused on the city where the biodiversity is it's where the pests come in um, it's where much of the radiation occurs um, it, but it's where a lot of the, the really good stuff is and it's where the people are so you want to engage people with nature do it in their backyards and do it locally and it's gone gangbusters yeah, it, great. it really has people have really embraced the opportunity to learn more about um, the nature of this place the other thing you have to remember about a city like Adelaide is that it's got, got characters like you and I, Adrian, who've probably been here two, three, four generations. Steve is a relatively recent arrival. I brought all the foxes and rabbits, apparently. <laughs> That's right. He came off the boat. He introduced soccer into the area. <laughs> Devastating. That was a good thing, Chris. Back. That was a good thing. <laughs> Should call it in yeah. football. That um, grass is fine. And then you've got people who come from all sorts of other cultures. I've often just recently they come from culturally and linguistically diverse communities um, they the culture is very different around how you approach nature and wildlife so how do we engage with those especially if english isn't their first language and that's a really important role because they have a contribution to make to engaging with and therefore conserving our biodiversity so those are a series of relatively new challenges um, and i think we'll see our ways of interacting with um, all of the all of the communities that have come here will change, and I think I'm really looking forward to that sort of challenge too. It's it definitely yeah. is. We've done a few shows when we used to have the refugee centre at Woodside, and they used to get us to come out and do wildlife shows and. They're often scared of the animals, yeah. or um, you know, it's almost like when I talk to older generations in Australia, some of them are like. We used to kill those. What? And that's before you get a snake out. Like, it's just a lizard. And it's like, yeah, you don't want them around your house. There's this kind of phobia of yeah. animals. Um, so it's kind of... The, refugees have a lot of issues um, in their own personal lives, um, power to them. And the last thing they want to hear about is, like, all the issues that our wildlife has. Yes. <laughs> um, so it is a gentle step, like, check out this, you know, and hopefully try to engage the younger generation. I'm sure we will. And we've done a terrible job, really, with um, informing a whole range of communities about the true nature of our wildlife. Now, we tend to say it's full of lethal animals. You know, if you go down yeah. that hill, the snakes will get you. The snakes don't, the spiders will. Mm. You know, swimming in the ocean, all the great whites will eat you. And if they don't, the jellyfish, don't get me started on the stonefish. And then bloody <laughs> kangaroos punch you. That's right. Every, everything <laughs> is going to get you. <laughs> and it's not true. Whilst we have lethal snakes... They don't actually interact with people. You know, more mm. people die from snake bite in Southeast Asia, from cobras and a range of other mm. other snakes. Uh, we don't have bears. 
Any country no. with bears tends to have a significantly greater mortality rate. Drop bears. We do have, well, we did have drop bears until about 30,000 years yeah, ago. Like a Leo. <laughs> like a Leo guard of <laughs> but, but all of these other places around the world have challenges with wildlife. And, of course, we don't have currently the wildlife diseases that are so lethal. You know, we don't have rabies. We don't have the black plague that have been carried by, by small rodents. Uh, we don't have hunter virus that knocked off large numbers of people in the, the US and Canada a few years ago. We don't. So in the US, the chipmunk can kill you. And yet you come here and everybody says, oh, yeah. we've got all this lethal animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, More people it. are killed by cows in Australia than they are by venomous snakes. It's bloody yeah. hard to find a venomous snake. <laughs> <It's incredibly> <laughs> <laughs> when you want to. Yeah. And I mean, you, when we're you want professional one. herpetologists. <laughs> yeah. you, 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 you can't really find them. And if you do, they just take off. They're just gone. But, but you're right. Cows, horses and bees are the lethal animals here. And they're all domesticated animals. Yeah. Um, so you get all of this mythology and... You know, often it's been put about that Australia is a tough, hard place full of tough, hard animals. It's got really beautiful, uh, beautiful animals. There is a, a program on one of the Foxtel animal um, channels, I won't say which it is, that ran 100 lethal, 100 of Australia's most deadly animals. And on its big map, it's got um, the squirrel glider. And you go, oh, really? You're trying to put about the squirrel glider is going to rip your face off. They choke you. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they wrap around and smother you like the horrible little creature from Alien. You know, it's 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 a silly myth, and yeah. it has done a lot of a lot of damage to the way we view our nature. Yeah, I agree with that. That's true. Like coming from Europe, like we'll go back to bees for a second. Coming from from England, like bees sting you, and they bloody hurt. Yeah. Um, you come here and someone says, oh, there's a bee. And you're, I'm, I'm like whacking my hands around. Get off me. But it's probably a native bee that doesn't even sting. <laughs> like <That's> right, <laughs> most of our bees don't yeah. sting here. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we lose about one or two people a year from croc attack. Yeah. And that could be absolutely prevented as people doing silly things. Yeah. Yeah. But there are parts of the world. I mean, I think overall in the world, about a thousand people are killed each year by croc attack. Yeah. Another couple of thousand lose limbs. But it's because they, they have no choice. They've got to go. They don't yeah. have taps like we do. They've got to get into the, the water to get their Same in other countries drink. where they die from venomous snake bites mm. is because they're actually their hand doing they're their... farming yeah, with those farming shoes on. Hand, no shoes yeah. on. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, of course, a lot of those snakes are there after the rodents in the fields or there's mm. snakes like the king cobra, which feeds on other snakes. Mm. So they, they're there in, in large densities. As you pointed out, it's hard to find mm. snakes, even if they're quite common. So... Eastern browns are quite common in the city, yeah. but you wouldn't know it. No, no, that's right, yeah. When we went to Darwin State, we found nine species of snake in two days. We did. We tried very hard. A lot of it was just driving on the roads up there, yeah, wasn't it? Did. Driving <laughs> Litchfield yeah. and yeah. Yeah, fog yeah, down that is different, different places. Up in the tropics and that, yeah. it's just Went out with Gavin type. Bifford. Yeah. Um, yeah, amazing. That was good. I just want to say, like, when you talked about people that come to Australia and they don't understand our wildlife, um, slightly disjunct from that, Steve, nationalised... Uh -oh. Mm -hmm. Didn't know who Ranger Stacy was, Chris. Oh, that's appalling. Yeah. See, Totally Wild was one of those programs that really, really um, have, have Steve Bakshul. Yes, I met Shit. Steve. Um, <laughs> I actually met Ranger Stacy better than Steve. But, um, yeah, she's, she's delightful. Though she's not on Totally Wild anymore, is she? No, no. Is well, totally Wild thing? doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I don't right. think that exists anymore. Um, they they pulled it out. Have they pulled it completely? They pulled it out of Adelaide. They actually pulled it completely now. But I don't know if maybe it's a not. thing. 
Yeah, yeah see, that's one of the, the great tragedies awesome. is that we have moved into um, programs that don't necessarily inform in a respectful way, like Ranger Stacey, into those that involve more animal wrestling, you know, and that it's a challenge. And the environment's a challenge to be beaten up and overcome. Yeah. Like, like Tiger King during COVID, everyone was oh, watching Tiger yeah. King. And that gives all of us a bad Adrian, name. It was awesome. I mean, it was, sadly it was, but it was just, it just gave everybody <laughs> it was a bad name. mesmerising in its horror. I, I know, think I yeah. the first three episodes and I, I couldn't do it, do it anymore. It was just But they had everything there to create a financial financially uh, stable business and do actual education and awareness and involve people. They could have put back some plants and habitat. They could have used those tigers to be ambassadors for a really mm. powerful message. And I think, what's that? Just It's that drugs and just mm. not really having a, a background in conservation and ego and I, I don't know what went yeah. wrong. Everything went wrong. <laughs> then you see some of those tigers were obese. They were clearly drugged. They were certainly depressed. Mm. You know, and there's a there's a, a lot of, of real sadness around the way they were managed. He had so many animals. He could have just had... You don't need... I mean, I, I entertain a room full of people with eight native animals for an hour, and that's only eight animals. Like, I'm... As, out of all the wildlife demonstrators around the place, I don't have that many animals. It's the it's the quality of animals that we have. You don't need to be a hoarder and have all these things. And Anyway, I won't go down that road of thinking, but anyway. No, I agree with that. Yeah. No, I remember when I first came here, one of my... Um, one of my heroes was Rob Bredel, the barefoot bushman in, in Europe. He was huge over there. He was great. I, I, he'd get bitten by the odd thing and do some weird things, but he, I thought he was great. I remember coming to Renmark when his reptile park was still open yep. and he was there on his own and he served us to, to get us into the park and I was amazed by all of this. And I had a chat with him and said to him, when are you going to do another TV series? Like, I'd love for you to be back on TV. And he said he'd put in a lot of pilots and put in a lot of ideas for TV series every time they come back and say, you're not exciting enough for today's. Yeah, that's what, so we wind up with the Bear grills. Yeah. You know, he's heavily biting his head off bats and things. Mm. To, you know, when he could have just packed a muesli bar. You know, you don't need to mm. kill animals like that just to make a point that yep. you're a big macho dude. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's gone wrong. I think that's gone completely wrong. Yes. Would... Yeah, we, we've lost the plot. I'm a bit twitchy about um, some of these sort of, you know, naked and afraid type programs as well. Cause yeah, because still... they blur them out. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, by, you were going somewhere else with that. So emaciated. <laughs> but they also kill a lot of wildlife. And it keeps yeah. going, well, a program that shows how tough you are by actually killing animals is really... Yeah, it's not. And what they ought to be doing is just hunting insects too and, and roots and tubers. Because mm. but So if they don't want to do that, they've got to bring down, you know, an elk or a... You know, an eland or something. It's not going to work. And mm. It's just silly. It's funny, isn't it, how on one side you've got, like, you know, we need more excitement but then on the other side there's a huge backlash towards zoos and animals in captivity and i'll meet people halfway like i'm not a massive fan of animals in captivity i almost wish we didn't need to do it um i like companion animals i am excited about marsupials coming into captivity people that do it right and keep them right learning about the environment through like i talked about the story of my bearded dragon and maybe in a thousand years plus maybe uh, you know like we have cats and dogs and guinea pigs and rabbits these animals will exist um uh, not to say we shouldn't focus on the wild counterparts. It's a whole different thing. No one's saying we shouldn't protect wolves because we have pet dogs. Um, we can do both. Uh, that backlash, I mean, that's it's growing, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, we've still got to have a really sensible discussion around the difference between domesticated and tame. 
So we, we domesticate a lot of animals that can't necessarily exist in the wild because they've been so changed structurally in a part of our life. You know, dogs, for example, we don't have packs of Pekingese roaming the country, Thank you know, God. savaging the wild. There's <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> a concept. Pekingese. <laughs> um, Where did wild Pekingese come from? <laughs> well, you can hear them out there baying at I the you, I'm in. <laughs> um, but then when you move into native wildlife, and perhaps cats are one of those in the grey area as well, you've got animals that might tame well, but they're still essentially a wild animal. So what's our responsibility to a wild animal? Some tame much better than others. Bearded dragons actually make fantastic pets. Mm. They like being tickled. You know, they, they actually enjoy that sort of company. Some birds do. Parrots, for, some parrots, for example. But mm. others don't, you know. So we're never really going to see the taming of raptors. They, they might, individuals might tame, and they have been used, obviously, for falconry, but they don't really become a domesticated animal. So that balance then about which animals we use, which ones we appreciate in nature and which ones we bring in, that's, it's about getting that right. So some animals quite like it. So koalas actually make quite a good tamed animal in some circumstances because some individuals really like people. Some actually like people too much and they get too clingy. And so they can actually be not much good for any sort of educational purpose. Others can be anxious, they can be depressed, they go through all of the same sort of emotions and have the same sort of personalities as we do. So you need to ref, um, respect that and identify those that, that you can keep and then then it becomes really useful and not the ones that don't. You know, they need a, a spot to themselves. You're quite right. I mean, if someone, if a family goes and gets a guinea pig, not a massive investment, they've pretty well got a guinea pig. Yeah. If you go out and get a betong, um, you know, you're raising a betong into your home, it, it, it could become a teenager and become a betong and That's you right. may never be able to get near it and people need to be aware of that. Um, there's always the best case scenarios with these animals, but you've got to have a plan B. Um, you know, what, what if you've got a feral bet? What are you going to do with it? You can't let it go. That's it. Um, you know, not a lot of people have a, an enclosure for a big betong. You know, you can't just put them in a, in a rabbit hutch. Why can you put a rabbit in a rabbit hutch and not a betong? I'm not ever advocating betongs and rabbit hutches but why do we tolerate that with rabbits is that the years of domestication that they can just be in a hut and I guess I also think it's just because we make it up and say that they live they live in a yeah, they, that's well, probably true we've now, <laughs> we've now got domesticated rabbits there are you know plenty of people who keep pet, pet rabbits that bear no resemblance to the the hoppers you would you would see up in the mid north they're not a terrified prey animal anymore they're just no, like they're there's just another predator fuzz, really, yeah they just they feed live. me they're fine and, and I think we we what we're not seeing is that with betongs. If, if in a hundred years we've got a, a domesticated betong that doesn't get flighty and doesn't leap up like they do and they can leap what, two or three metres into the air and smash themselves into the windows, um, then that might make a good pet. But until then, you need to know what you're doing and you need to know what you're buying yourself into. I mean, I know of people who had bought squirrel gliders just to have the pair charging around in an enclosure only to find that they keep getting bitten by the territorial male and no, squirrel gliders can hurt. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, your sugar gliders and squirrel gliders, mm. they're one of the ones that people think, oh, that's going to be a really great it's pet. So and, and I could tell you, my limit of interaction with my squirrel gliders is I go in there, I scoop them out of the nesting box, I put them into the carry box, I go to a show. I take them out, I've got a pillowcase on my arm, they sit on the pillowcase on my hand, I talk about them, I let the kids pat them, I put them on someone's shoulder, they glide to me, I put them back in the box, I bring them home, and I put them back. 
That's it. Yeah. That's all I want. And I love them. They're beautiful. I don't. I don't want a pet squirrel glider. If you had a pet squirrel glider, it's just all over you. It's just running. Well, the, that's right. We don't hand raise our squirrel gliders. This. I've. I've had people that have taken. They've asked if they could have young ones so they could raise them and have them as a pet. All very fanciful. I'm like, uh, you warn people, but you know they got to go and do it. Six months later, yeah, about those squirrel gliders. Can you take them back? Yeah. They, they're the worst. I go into the again. When we take the food in there, I like that healthy distance between me and my squirrel glider. I don't want it climbing all over me because the previous owners You've put peanuts in their pockets and, <laughs> and it's climbing all over looking at all your orifices looking for food. You go, well, that's not good for it. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, yes, these, these are all the things that, that we, we have to start to think through. It's not just about shouldn't we have quals as pets or shouldn't we have sugar guys as pets, but what are you actually doing? It's education, isn't it? Big yeah. difference between domestication and, that, and taming. Yeah. And there's one big mistake. I don't know when. When did cats actually become a domestic pet? Don't know. We talked about that. But that's one years ago. I think oh. that's one of the biggest mistakes ever. Because four thousand years on, and they are still one hell of a successful hunter. Well, Even they, the the best pet cat is still a one hell of a successful hunter. They well, don't lose they, that. They actually think did. The, um, we domesticate the cat, or did the cat domesticate us? Uh, yes. And I think it's probably a bit of the latter. They're probably an animal that could be regarded as tamed rather than genuinely domesticated. I think so. yeah. Because that step towards becoming feral is really short. I think too, though, but when you go back thousands of years, like people didn't want a pet cat that was like some fancy breed to look yeah. at and brush its hair. It was more like a practicality because you've got grain and you've got rodents right. and the cat had a practice. You want it to be that hunter, so there would have been So they still bred them to hunt yeah, they, and they, be yeah, great yeah. They were to keep rats and mice out, really, mm. of the granaries. And yeah. that was their primary... But you think even life. since the day, like, whatever, the last hundred years that people have been trying to produce these big cats, little cats, bald cats, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> bald cats, it's extra hairy cats, um, that, that they would have domesticated more. You know, it's just like dogs have, like dogs can be fully domesticated, brilliant yeah. trained. Cats just never quite get there, do they? No, they, they really, which is what was so terrifying about that move to bring some, uh, to have savannah cats, which were the mixture of serval and domestic cat. Remember okay. that four or five years ago to introduce? That, that would have been a disaster for the natural environment of Australia mm. to have an even larger faster, more agile, half-serval racing around out here, it would just wreak havoc. These 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 animals don't necessarily make good, good pets. Mm. So certainly some cats do, and a lot of it depends on how the owners... Well, they can work. still make great but pets. You're, you're absolutely but if you right get a, a mouse on the end of a stick and wave it in front of your, your best cat in the world, that will go down into stalking position and, and do everything that it knows it should do to kill that mouse. Even so those, it knows even what those to bald do. cats, they, they still do that? Or the what ones? Those stupid bald cats. <laughs> those hairless cats. Sorry. <laughs> well, they're, they're just like, I'm picking on them. Are they, any, they, are they good hunters? Well, they're, I don't know. they're probably pretty useless. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Quals, everyone always comes back to quals. There are the people that say, we should all have quals. And then there are people that say, we shouldn't have any native animal in captivity at all. And I think every different animal has a different story and every individual, every species and every keeper. Um, and I've always said, if it's done properly with all the factors considered, it's it, the positives outweigh any potential negative. Yeah, it, it's all about why you're doing it. Yeah. What What is your story for connecting with quals? You know, if you are... A, you know, a zoologist with a deep passion and you're studying it, you understand it, you know the risks, you know the challenges, you know what you're getting into. It's not a pet for your kids. 
um, and what happens if it does go wild or, or have all of these stress-related responses, then what are you going to do? These are questions we don't ask ourselves around dogs, um, although obviously some wind up in, in the pound it, or the RSPCA still, yeah. um, mm. because they're not, they're not well looked after. Um, and animals are all about people, really, and it's so much of that is around education. So it's not just a, it's my right, it's also your responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. Yeah. You're yeah. everything to that animal. Yeah. You're its enrichment, its food, it, it, yeah. whether it comes inside or outside. It's, it's the amount of space it has. It's all you. It's, yeah, absolutely. Um, guys, great chat. I love that. I love that too. Mm. Can, yeah. can we get you on again? I feel like there's might so even, much more we could talk about with you. Might, <laughs> even, so much might even release this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to edit out the soccer comment, though, aren't you? No, I'm going to change it around so that you put a positive stance to soccer. That was somehow. the great introduction to Australia, <laughs> yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That well, was really, really good. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Chris. Good that is be. awesome. Love yep. it, Chris. And, Love and Chris it. has been on before, guys. Um, to for listeners, if you haven't heard, go back and check that one out. It's one early in the piece. That was the same day we had Ranger Stacey on, actually. Ooh. Shout out to Ranger Stacey. We, we brought Chris's book out with us as well, which is Adelaide, Nature of a City. And uh, Chris said, oh, I've written about 10 books since then, so yeah. we've got lots of books to catch up on. Yes, you haven't done much research on me before we came. No, no that's right. <laughs> well, we thought we knew you. Yeah. That's right. I'll bring the other ones along next <laughs> yes. time. That's good, yeah. Mate, thank you for all the stuff you do. Thank you. We oh, really appreciate what you do. My pleasure. Congratulations on all of the stuff you're doing. You're doing some amazing work. Thanks. Thank you. And, guys, thank you for listening. <laughs>